Welcome to Season 2, Episode 13 of Man of the Making, with former monk Rajan Shankara and myself, Rokas. Thank you for joining me, Rajan, and over to you. Greetings, Rokas, and hello, everyone else, listeners all around the world from I don't know how many countries now people are listening to. This is Man in the Making, and I'm Rajan Shankara. And this episode, I was wanting to combine a bit of uh, Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meaning, the Architecture of Belief, with his 12 Rules for Life. Um, Jordan Peterson is a renowned uh, professor, psychologist, uh, an actual clinician who's been working with clients for decades, I think over 30 years. And uh, he used to teach at the, uh, in Tor- a Toronto-based yep. uh, university. Is that right? Yep. I don't know if he works there anymore. Honestly, he just like toured the world um, for a good year and went and talked to people uh, on stage and gave lectures about his, uh, his latest book, um, so I honestly don't think he teaches uh, as a professor anymore, but, uh, maybe that's not accurate. He wrote his first book and uh, came up with his first book in 1999 and published it. And it's called maps of meaning, the architecture of belief. Um, it's one of the greatest books I've ever read. Uh, it changed my life and it, um, it taught me, um, chaos and order theory and chaos and order theory uh, could also be called the theory of yin and yang or the um, the belief system of um, masculine and feminine and understanding what that means and not just man and woman but actually uh, getting down to the essence of our sexual energies which can be viewed in a uh, microcosmic and macrocosmic um, relationship. So the mi- microcosm would be, <coughs> excuse me, coronavirus. If you, <laughs> if you, <laughs> if you um, take the microcosm, it's, it's the smaller part of your world and what you perceive on a day-to-day basis. Um, and then the macrocosmic uh, way of looking at things would be anything expanded from that your life as a, as a whole uh, and then expanding all the way out to the galaxy as a whole and everyone's life and then the universe. And then beyond that is the questions, the eternal questions of creation and um, you know, life and death. That's the microcosm versus the macrocosm. And you can look at chaos and order theory for everything and the idea of uh, yin and yang and masculine and feminine and specifically with Jordan Peterson's work uh, and the work of uh, several other people, uh, notable people that he quotes in the, in his works and has studied over time, uh, see things. It's, it's a representation for, for everything. And yin and yang doesn't just have to do with man and woman or your, your relationship in your marriage or your girlfriend and boyfriend, but uh, with all of life, uh, looking at nature, the cycles and patterns of nature, looking at uh, the way we perceive things, um, the way we are 
even not knowing why we are, the history of life itself, all of these things can be boiled down to chaos and order theory. So even though I studied theology and philosophy uh, up until finding this work in 2017 or 18, uh, it's the first time uh, I had learned about it, this yin and yang being compared to chaos and order and, and masculine and female. And obviously my education was, was uh, stunted because of that. And so Maps of Meaning is also one of the densest books I've ever read. It's uh, not for everyone. And it, it just the first two pages uh, took me um, a good day or two. to I just kept rereading them to try to understand what the hell Jordan Peterson was talking about. And once you start to get it, it actually flows quite well and your mind picks up quickly on the thing, on these things, these concepts. Uh, Maps of Meaning came out in 1999. His latest book, Peterson's latest book was uh, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. And it was basically Maps of Meaning boiled down for normal people for people who don't want to read a dense academic book and it's it's a an incredible bestseller it's it's um you know now you hear that a lot like new york new york new york times bestseller and all that but that doesn't mean necessarily that it's had the impact as other bestsellers have um and this peterson's 12 rules for life is um a multi-million seller copies sold. It's it's not just a New York Times bestseller. It is a like a global, a globally uh, redistributed and sold book, and it's definitely going to go down in history as being a great work. Um, and it is absolutely both both books are incredible incredible stories of his life and his teachings and the teachings of um, some of his mentors like Carl Jung um, and uh, Jean Piaget and um, countless of others uh, of, of the work that he studied from them. And I'm trying to find a name here uh, oh, of course, uh, Frederick Nietzsche. Uh, but there's a a theme from both of these books that take root in uh, the work of Eliad. And Eliad, um, Eliad wrote about ancient mythologies and the history of people. And I'm looking up his name now and see if I can get a better description. All right, let's see how you say this. Mercia or Mercaea Eliad was a Roman, a Romanian historian of religion, fiction writer, philosopher, and professor at the University of Chicago. Uh, Jordan Peterson's first work, uh, Maps of Meaning, covers a lot 
of this man here who lived from 1907 and died in the year that I was born in 1986. Uh, so he's basically his title is a historian of religion. Now, not to get too deeply into the core foundation of all of this, but to get straight to the work as quickly as possible, I'll just quickly say that the belief behind Peterson's work and Iliad's work and Jung's work is to cover uh, the mind. And to understand the mind, we look in the past, we look throughout history, and one of the longest standing forms of teaching throughout history is religious studies. Uh, religious studies have uh, withstood the test of time, both due to uh, tragic um, war uh, against each other and the destroying of one religious text for another, but also because they're stories. And these stories tend to translate better throughout time than um, actual information as data. And a story is something that connects with uh, people's lives and their uh, emotions and feelings. And if you can tell a story with uh, teachings inside of it, uh, teaching values and the uh, morals and ethics that one should follow, uh, you'll actually have someone who becomes a true believer much faster than if you just told them what to do that was right or wrong. And when it's, when it's, um, when it's promulgated um, using a story, ensconced inside of a story, these teachings tend to last uh, throughout history. So a lot of religious uh, mythology is story-based. Um, the Bible is story-based. Uh, the Vedas and, and Agamas in, in Hinduism are uh, have a rich uh, epic um, history and uh, have one of the largest epics ever written, the uh, Ramayana. And inside that being one of the most famous battle stories ever told, the Mahabharata. And uh, these stories tend to talk about chaos and order or life and death, uh, the dual nature of masculine and feminine, and yin and yang. And, you know, Zen and Confucianism and, and Buddhism, I think, step back out of a lot of those uh, epics and tales, and they just get down to practical application, and I think that's why they're so popular. And then for the rest of the world, uh, these tales become... Uh, ways to live by in uh, Christianity, uh, Islam, uh, Hinduism, and these uh, very story-related uh, philosophies and theologies. So Jordan Peterson kind of has the presupposition that all of his work is based on, you know, telling a story and uh, teaching you through story. Then he goes in and out of that academically. And that said, that was my quick explanation of uh, Peterson's work and Eliad's work and really history itself um, and the transmission of uh, culture and tradition throughout time. And I've tried to go through maps of meaning and just capture some of the most basic things. And then we can maybe discuss them a little bit. And um, I would commend your reading of Maps of Meaning over time. Take it slowly. And, of course, if you haven't yet read 
12 Rules for Life. We'll cover that a little bit, but I, I've mostly focused uh, my attention on Maps of Meaning. Uh, they're essentially the same book, except Maps of Meaning is half as long, I think. I uh, know um, 12 Rules for Life, excuse me, is shorter and easier to read. So it just depends on, on how you learn the best, basically. The beginning of Maps of Meaning, well, Rokas, what do you, what do you think about what I just said? I mean, I know you've got something to say about, uh, I mean, that's got, got to be some pretty interesting stuff to just hear. Yeah, it definitely sounds interesting. Um, yeah, I'm just waiting to start. <laughs> He's like, get it's on. quite with a long it. introduction. So, yeah. <laughs> it is a long introduction. Okay. Uh, but I am very long-winded. So he starts off by saying, something we cannot see protects us from something we do not understand. The thing we cannot see is culture in its intrapsychic or internal manifestation. The thing we do not understand is the chaos that gave rise to culture. If the structure of culture is disrupted, chaos returns. We will do anything, anything to defend ourselves against that return. So he's opening the book here with the basis of everyone's fear in life. And I mean everyone. Like it's in our DNA structure to resist chaos and only seek order. And a lot of the things we talk about on this podcast is to approach chaos bravely with courage. And the rest of this book breaks down our experience in life and explains why chaos is the thing we actually need to approach, not the thing we need to defend ourselves against. Is something the, like fear considered chaos? I'm sorry? Is something like fear considered chaos? Fate? Fear. Oh, fear. Fear is the uh, irrational response to uh, thought. It's a. It's not. It's not yet anything but potential. Okay, so when you're in a potentiality, you haven't yet reached order or chaos. So you're in a. You're in the land in between the 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 in between world before action. Okay, and that's where a lot of people get caught in in fear. Right. And uh, chaos is, is the actual representation or expression of an outcome. And uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, it's one of the reasons why fear is so irrational is because chaos and order is actually rational. It, it implies action. It implies things going on. And fear is the uh, worry about a potential outcome and uh, based on memory or imagination, you know, maybe it'll happen or this has happened before. So it's probably going to happen again. And it's, uh, it's, it's something to be avoided because fear itself causes you to avoid that, which could potentially save your life. 
he explains his life story throughout the entire book of 12 rules for life in maps of meaning peterson uh does not go on for a lot of his life he just tells small um snippets of pieces of uh periods in his, his life I, I guess i should say that make uh, the most relative sense to the book however uh, the same thing in, in 12 rules for life but in 12 rules for life it, it actually um, methodically uh, covers his life from year to year to year, along with the rules from rule ones, from rule one to rule 12. Chapter one in Maps of Meaning is uh, called Maps of Experience, Object, and Meaning. And he starts to go over what life means, okay? I'll just kind of read a little bit instead of explaining that. The world can be validly construed as forum for action or as a place of things. The former manner of interpretation, more primordial and less clearly understood, finds, finds its expression in the arts or humanities, in ritual, drama, literature, and mythology. Okay, he's talking about the stories here. The world is forum for action is a place of value, a place where all things have meaning. This meaning, which is shaped as a consequence of social interaction, is implication for action, or at a higher level of analysis, implication for the configuration of the interpretive schema that produces or guides action. So, the world is either a place for action or a place of things that we hold value. Um, and the place of things or our values, the, the meaning we place upon objects in our life, we learn from the, what, he, what he calls the uh, less clearly understood, the arts, humanities, ritual, drama, literature, and mythology. Okay, So the stories that we hear throughout our life the Disney movies, the battle versus good versus evil is, is less understood than the meaning we give things. Okay. So he goes on to say, no complete world picture can be generated with use of both modes of construal. The fact that one mode is generally set at odds with the other means only that the nature of their respective domains remains insufficiently discriminated. Adherents of the mythological worldview tend to regard the statements of their creeds as indistinguishable, indistinguishable from empirical fact, even though such statements were generally formulated long before the notion of objective reality emerged. Those who, by contrast, accept the scientific perspective, who assume that it is or might become complete, forget that an impossible gulf currently divides what is from what should be. So what he basically says there is we can't just stick with um, the world of science, the world of form, and the meaning that we give objects, and we can't just stick with mythology and story. We have to have a mixture of both, and we actually use both in our upbringing and in our youth uh, throughout our education and evolution uh, until we die. We use a mixture of both and the denial of one or the other is to not actually understand how to use 
that modality of living or understanding. Does that make sense, uh, Rokas, to you? Or does that kind of like, can you, should I break that down even more? Um. I'll tell you why it's complicated. It's complicated because we're talking about the essence of life, but we're at the same time, we're talking about some of the most basic structures of our day-to-day experience. Okay, so the world of things, the, the meaning we give things is explained more clearly in the beginning. And let me, let, me, let me get through that and then ask you. Okay. We need to know four things, what there is, what to do about what there is, that there is a difference between knowing what there is and knowing what to do about what there is and what the difference is. So that's a little um, riddle, you know, explaining these two different things. And how our world view is shaped by those things. What there is, what to do about what there is, that there's a difference between knowing what there is and knowing what to do about what there is and what the difference is, right? So if we have to go to work, we have to understand the, the, the meaning of work. We have to understand the modalities behind that work, what to do at work, and the differences of knowing about work and knowing, knowing how to do work, okay? So that's the basis of our life. We're given consciousness. We have to ideally understand consciousness and then understand what the hell to do with consciousness and what the difference is, right? One is reflection-based and uh, self-reflection mostly. And the other one is the world of action, okay? So it's, it's breaking up the world of meaning and the world of action. To explore something, to quote, discover what it is, means most importantly to discover its significance for motor output. Within a particular social context, and more particularly, to determine its precise objective sensory or material nature. This is knowledge in the most basic of senses, and often constitutes sufficient knowledge. All right. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that for a sample and just give an example. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. He gives an example right here. Imagine that a baby girl toddling around in the course of her initial tentative investigations reaches up onto a countertop to touch a fragile and expensive glass sculpture. She observes, observes its color, sees it shine, feels that it is smooth, cold, and heavy to the touch. Suddenly, her mother interferes, grasps her hand, tells her not to ever touch that object. The child has just learned a number of specifically consequential things about the sculpture and has identified its sensory properties. More importantly, she has determined that the approached, that approached in the wrong manner, the sculpture is dangerous in the presence of her mother, at the very least. And she has discovered as well that the sculpture is regarded more highly in its present unaltered configuration than the exploratory tendency. The baby girl has simultaneously encountered an object 
from its empirical perspective and its socio-culturally determined status. The empirical object might be regarded as those sensory properties intrinsic to the object. The status of the object, okay, the way her mother places status on the object, consists of its meaning, consists of its implication for behavior. Everything a child encounters has this dual nature, experienced by the child as part of a unified totality. Everything is something and means something. And the distinction between essence and significance is not necessarily drawn. Okay. Now, does that clearly kind of... Yeah, that uh, makes sense. But it's like, wow, something so simple is explained in such detail. Yes, yes. That's why the first few pages of this book is like, what the hell? <laughs> okay, it asks you to become a, a scientist and a philosopher at the same time, okay, to, under, to, to ex, ex, expand your vocabulary and really take time and, and, and understand what life is all about. And this is why people hire uh, coaches like me right? This is because they don't want to do that. So instead of reading this academic, uh, as my computer says, the PDF is 400 pages. Instead of reading that, you have someone help you. You have a professor teach you a topic in school, or you have a coach, a life coach teach you about something that they've spent a a decade or more trying to understand and, and then understanding. And this book breaks down uh, – it's so fascinating because it breaks down everything in life in that way. And it is absolutely a work of art, and that's why I consider Jordan Peterson to be one of the wisest people to have existed. And uh, he's a genius in his own right. Um, so the baby girl – has simultaneously encountered the the glass object and understands its socio-culturally determined status, okay? So we all look at things and they mean something to us, right? Because of what someone else trained us to think about. But then the, the thing in and of itself is has a has an empirical value to it it just is a thing it holds something right now the meaning that we've all given it anything glass is that we'd rather the glass not break we'd we prefer glass to be in a solid form so that we can use it utilitarian in a utilitarian way like this is its function keep it this way okay so all of life has a socio-culturally determined status beyond what its, what its actual status is. And that's where the term, we see the world as we are, not as it is. It is. That's, that's, where that, that's, where that's, that's, that's what that saying is trying to explain. We see the world through our value system, our value hierarchy. But that is not how the world is. The world is, if you have a glass structure and it breaks, what is that? What do you, what do you think that is, Rokas? 
I think it just is what how it is because yes. I know we, we apply our own framework to things, but in reality, if something happens, then it just happens. Yes, that's absolutely 100% correct. The glass breaking is just the glass breaking. It's not anything else. It's not good. It's not bad from one perspective, right? From the actual perspective of the reality taking place in front of you, it just is. It's, it's not anything else. There is no adjective to describe. There's no qualifier to describe what just happened until we add our own thing to it. And that's known. That's called manipulation. We're, we're constantly doing our thing to the world around us all the time. And it's based on when we were young and someone said, don't break that right? And those are good things, right? That's culture. We have good things. We have things that we enjoy because people teach culture through story. And that's a story we were told. That's a story the little girl was told. We all like this thing as it is. We don't like the glass on the floor. We don't like being cut, you know, and bleeding. We want to be safe. And these are things that we live by because of social, culturally determined uh, status and and I love that 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 little story and you'll find that later in the chapter uh, the Nietzsche takes over and quoting of um, different different philosophies and, and Christianity specifically. Uh, Peterson is very Christian oriented and I'm going to just kind of go to the meat of the matter. Okay. So I'm going to skip all that for you. Uh, Cause I don't uh, like teaching. I, I I'm a secular teacher. I don't really like to teach um, based on religion. Um, I believe that you can take what religion has given us and turn it secular and I think you can take something secular and turn it religious. So, and what does that word mean, secular? Uh, of of no religion. Okay. Okay. So I think you can be anyone and believe these things because they go down to our soul. They don't, you know. But even that is that even secular? I don't know because I do believe we're a soul. But I believe we perceive things. I believe we perceive consciousness. So as consciousness. So I don't think that's arguable. Unless you're like just negative. I don't know. Um, he goes on to say, we also presently possess in accessible and complete form the traditional wisdom of a large part of the human race. But we possess accurate description of the myths and rituals that contain and condition the implicit and explicit values of almost everyone who has ever lived. And that, that, that's, quite a, that's quite a statement, right? Uh, and I'll try to break that set. I'll try to break up that sentence into just one, a few words. We also, we presently possess in accessible and complete form, the traditional wisdom of a large part of the human race. And furthermore, the explicit values of almost everyone who has ever lived. To think about that for a second, we used to, we used to say in the monastery that, we're the sum total of everything we've done. We're the sum total of all the lives we've lived. And 
even beyond, you know, just to take that into this but life where the sum total. Would that only be true, though, if you would learn from those past lives? Ah, so learning is, is unconscious and conscious, right? So we do things, a lot of this, this book is, is trying to explain that very question, right? We do things, even though we don't know why we do them, as we've previously learned it from somewhere else, okay? So the girl has learned about glass structures as a child, as a baby, and grows up with that same teaching, but doesn't necessarily remember where she got it from. So we, we have that in all of us. We have what we do. We don't necessarily know why we do it. And it's because of a story, a myth, a legend, or a yeah. teaching, a conditioning that we've learned. Yeah. Does that, make, does that answer but your question? That's, I think, what I was saying when you said we are the sum of, in the monastery, believe you are the sum of um, that everything experience. that came before you. Yeah. So that would only be true if you learned from those experiences, was what no. I said. No. You don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to, well, what is not learned? What do you mean by not learning? Not obeying? Uh, no, no. Um, so being the sum of all those, um, all those things that happened in the past, but what if, let's say, you were, you were just in a room and you didn't know about anything at all, then are you still the sum of everything that came before you? As in, if you lived your life just theoretically in a room without knowing anything, I, still, I don't know. Am I thinking about this wrong? Like, well, no. The, there's no wrong way to think about this. It's it's a reflection in in um, you know, knowledge, and that's a great question. That's like um, uh, that's like Plato's man, uh, man in the cave, right? Um, oh yeah, yeah. I do remember that. So the the what is it? The three the three it's, slaves it's stuck in a cave were lived in a cave, born in a cave, and they see shadows outside. And uh, no, they're, 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 they, well, they are the, the sum total of their experience for that, for that moment. And they see the shadows outside and they just guess. And they're like, well, there must be monsters out there. And then the guy gets out and goes outside of the cave and says, hey, those are just, those are just normal people walking around. Like we, you can actually unshackle yourself. And come outside and they're like well no i mean we don't believe you so if you don't if you don't experience then your your sum total is is quite a, a low value right okay okay if 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 mom never if mom never taught you about glass you're gonna learn the hard way right yeah i think that's what i was trying to get at then okay now that makes sense Hopefully you're not, hopefully you're, as a listener, whoever's out there, hopefully you're not shackled up in a cave listening to this. If you are, email Raj at rajashakar.com. We'll try to free you from your slaved <laughs> state. Or you, hopefully you don't live in a room. Uh, and, and that's an extreme example, right? And we can always go to extremes. Um, but to take most people who ever lived at most, you know, yeah, the, 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 we have, 
they're going to be we we are going to presently possess a complete traditional wisdom database of the larger part of the human race yeah and for everyone that has ever lived but there's more to that okay so he goes on to say these myths are centrally and properly concerned with the nature of successful human existence careful com- comparative analysis of this great body of religious philosophy might allow us to provisionally determine the nature of essential human motivation and morality if we are willing to admit our ignorance and take the risk. Now, I'm going to go ahead and disagree a little bit. And I don't think that I'm as much of a believer of religious philosophy as Peterson. I think that philosophy breaks down more to the experience of all humans, whether they were religious or not. And, and I don't think so. The idea behind Peterson is that you should, everyone should know that this, there's, this is a presupposition that he believes in. And this is what he teaches from that. We learned our morals from Christianity. And he had a debate with, um, who's that one dude, Sam Harrison, uh, the famous, um, what is he like a famous atheist, right? Uh, I've not heard of him. Look up Sam Harris when you can. He's a he's a brilliant fellow. But he's also kind of annoying. I'm not a fan of him, but um, he disagrees. He has a he has a conversation with Peterson about this very topic, and um, Jordan Peterson assumes that everyone kind of agrees with that that we get our our morals and values from Christianity. And it's obviously not true, because which is an incredible blindside, I think, because Christianity isn't even that old. The oldest religion in the world, to, to be biased, is Hinduism. So do we get our values from Christianity? Well, our, our values go far past 2,000 or 3,000 years ago. And some would say there's, there's human remains and civilization remains from 75,000 years ago. So Christianity has a relatively small timeline compared to the larger picture. And so, no, I don't think we get our morals and values from Christianity. I think we get a lot of Western-based moral, morality from it. But now Western-based values are being replaced with Eastern ones. You go outside and it's, you well, without social distancing, you go outside and it's ubiquitous to hear about karma and reincarnation and an all-pervasive consciousness and divinity in all things. Like, that's everywhere now. And that's not Christianity. That's not Western values. Those are Eastern values. So... It, it's it it depends on your worldview in in the in the in the final analysis and I don't think as he says I don't think it's careful careful comparative analysis I think it's I think it's where you lean and I think if you could step back from either religion and either and and religious philosophy altogether and just say well we have an analysis of humans in general and from everyone that's come from everywhere. And we have this big melting pot of experience and history. And what we do now kind of reflects a little bit of everything. Not just, um, 
a specific body of uh, a specific method of living or a specific mythology. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, it makes sense. So a lot of this, um, a lot of what I highlighted for the podcast of uh, tries to avoid confrontation or conflict with uh, ideologies. Um, let's let's. Or did you have anything else, Rokas? Or I'll just go to the uh, meat. No. Of the uh, continue. Okay, so this is the meat of the matter behind uh, chaos and order theory. Proper analysis of mythology of the type proposed here is not mere discussion of historical events and it is not mere investigation of primitive belief. It is instead the examination, analysis, and subsequent incorporation of an edifice of meaning which contains within it hierarchical organization of experiential valence or value. Valence is like the meaning we give behind things the meaning behind things that we give them. The mythic imagination is concerned with the world in the manner of the phenomenologist who seeks to discover the nature of subjective reality instead of concerning himself with description of the objective world. So he's just explaining kind of what a a philosopher seeks to understand. There's the objective world, the glass vase, the glass cup that that is, is the way it is as the glass object. And then there's the subjective world. I don't want the glass object to break. That's subjective. The glass has no care in the world. It doesn't think about that kind of thing. Myth and the drama that is part of myth provide answers and image to the following question. How can the current state of experience be conceptualized in abstraction with regard to its meaning? So... How can we take away our sociological understanding of things and just see them as they are? That is what the mystic tries to do. That is what the monk tries to do. That is what the meditator seeks to achieve. They seek to achieve, they get rid of the bullshit, and they just try to go down to the core of everything. And you can do that with coronavirus. I love that. That's why people are like, well, what the hell do we do? And it's like, well, you do what you do. That's it. You stay alive. You follow, you know, reasonable logic for staying healthy. But beyond that, do not project your fear of anything onto the world. Just do as you do. Right? So I'll go down. You know, you can, let's talk about the worst case scenario. You lose your job. You're, you're losing money left and right, and you don't have any food. That is what it is. Yeah, and because you have to find a way it. around it. You don't need to assign a whole lot of head and tragedy and, and meaning to somehow come out of your situation. You can just be stoic. That's what, that's what the stoic philosophy is all about. Detachment. It seeks to separate the objective from the subjective. And I know it's hard. I know... Social distancing sucks, and I know that the entire world has is going through an economic um, destabilization. But it simply doesn't help to freak out about it. It doesn't help. It's no. There's no advantage to adding emotional significance behind it. 
And that's just kind of the objective matter of it. I'm not sure if that's debatable. I'm not sure if you can argue for emotion and say, well, emotion keeps us alive. And that's not emotion. That's instinctive. Instinctive is just the drives that are inside your DNA. So to contact that is different than emotion. That's not anxiety necessarily. That's not ongoing and chronic stress. It just is what it is. You know, hunter-gatherers just, it is what it is. We need food, we collect food. Um, you can stoically approach all of these things and separate that, that emotion out of it. And that's kind of what I try to help with. That's what I help people with as best as I can. Um, and I think it's, I, th I don't think it's easy, but I think it's a valuable question. You know what I mean? I think it's a valuable question. Can I do this objectively? Does that make sense? Roll yeah, for sure. Um, my thoughts on that were along the lines of what you said, where when something happens, you don't actually know if it's good or bad that that thing happened because you, you can't see into the future. So you don't know how that will affect the future. It may seem bad in the moment, but it could have a large positive impact in some way in the future. We just don't have it until you're looking back at what happened. Yeah. And even more so on the proactive side, um, you can see the good in everything. Like you can take out the good and the bad True. and just yeah. see it as it is. But you can also just take the good. And that's the Jocko Willink perspective, right? That's the, yeah. that's the Marcus Aurelius uh, perspective. That's, I mean, quite frankly, that's the perspective of anyone who is, you know, religious. Like everything has a, everything has a purpose. And so um, I highly recommend um, considering that as an option, you know. I'll go on a little bit here. So in this uh, paragraph before, a bit of an a instructional pattern, he says, meaning means implication before behavioral output. Logically, therefore, myth presents information relevant to the most fundamental moral problems. What should be? what should be done the desirable future is what should be can only be conceptualized in relationship to the present which serves at least as a necessary point of contrast and comparison to get somewhere in the future presupposes being somewhere in the present furthermore the desirability of the place traveled to depends on the balance of the place vacated. So the meaning of the place in question. The question of what should be, what line should be traveled, therefore has contained within it, so to speak, three sub-queries, which might be formulated as follows. Number one, what is? Number two, what should be? Number three, how should we therefore act? Okay, so this is, I'm going to kind of just suggest here that this is the basis of every mental calculation and I think it is right I wake up which is what is what should be well espresso how should we therefore act 
crush beans. And um, I interpret that as let's say, what is your let's say you're staying in bed. That's what is what should be is you getting out of bed is what it should be. And then what what you what was it? What was the third one? How should like, we therefore act? Yeah, how should we therefore act? So you know what you should do. So getting out of bed is the how you should therefore act. Exactly. Oh, okay. You're hundred percent correct. And then okay. here's the Here's the thing that ties all this together. I believe I'll, 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 I'll say that once more, maybe more clearly. So I think that's the basic function or calculation behind every single decision yeah. the brain goes through. Okay. Right. And I think that's what, um, I think that's what Peterson later suggests as well. So yes, you're absolutely right. What is the beginning of what is, is waking up, right? Or um, it, it, if it never ends, the beginning of what is, is, or the moment of what is, is just whatever's going on. So he, yeah. he defines that by saying, what is the nature or the significance of the current state of experience? So if what is is sleeping, right, before we even get up, and the alarm hasn't gone off, what should be? Well, we keep sleeping. How should we therefore act? Keep sleeping. And then your what is begins at waking up. And then my what is begins at the desire that the brain gives for caffeine. And then the what is for work is to find a job and then go to work. And how should we be? Or what should be? The, the, doing the work. How should we therefore act? Well, therein lies millions of calculations that we make on a day-to-day -day basis. Maybe not millions. So what the should be is still... Is what in your framework you think is the right thing to do? That's the what should be part. Aha. So the definition of that is, according to Peterson, to what either desirable or valuable end should that state be moving? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not always, it's not always so clear, right? It's not always just what we want or just what we need. It's, it's, it's whatever is, is meaningful to what we've given an object or a, a, a desirable end. Uh, we have value given to it, right? So I have a, espresso to me is a higher value than Helena's desire for, for tea. So not everyone has the same state of actions, right? And where's with this going? That is, he's explaining the nature of every decision in life. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, he, he uses mythologies and historical, you know, comparative analysis because people have existed before. So there's bigger. So we're talking about the mundane, right, Rokas? Mm -hmm. but, but then it's like these three questions, these three modes of, of living go into, well, should I divorce my wife? Should I kill myself? Should I secretly go for the prom promotion or another job without telling my current employer? And then how do you decide the what should be part? Uh, <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> That's the nature of life. That's the adventure of life. Okay.
your ability to maneuver that well is called wisdom. Wisdom is the timely application of knowledge. Acquiring knowledge is self-development. That's where you and I come in. We're teaching self-development. The wisdom is up to your amount of knowledge that you have and whether you're willing to act on it or not. I was just in a session the other day with a client who was conflicted with what should be, except his situation was, should I get a divorce or not? And it's, well, what, does, what value do you hold the relationship to be? And then he realized that he, he, his wife probably doesn't want to be in the relationship anymore. And he's holding on selfishly. And she's actually happier when they're not together. And then that's when you know what the what should be. Is well, you that's what that's you hope, you know. It it depends on your value system. So that's why we go into learning about values. We go into learning about history and mythologies and good versus evil. Who do we think we are, right? Because those are the three questions I have for every human what that I work with. Who are you? What are you all about? And how much can you endure? And I suggest that answering those three questions helps you with, well, what is, what should be, and how should you therefore act? So there's, there's those three questions uh, have a presupposition behind them. They imply that you know what the hell you're all about. If you don't, then you're stuck, right? You're frozen. You don't know what is. You don't know what should be. and You don't know, therefore, how to act. But Peterson suggests in the first chapter that all of life is boiled down into those three modes of being. What is, how should we act, into what should be. So, I'm sorry, I was looking at a diagram. What is, what should be, and therefore, how should we act? And the how should we act is actually in the center. So, if you had a circle of life, and you, your, your consciousness is inside the circle, on one end, you have what is, and then you have arrows going to the other side. On the other side is the future that you want. And in the middle is your action towards that future. Our answers to these three fundamental questions, modified and constructed in the course of our social interactions, constitutes our knowledge, insofar as it has any behavioral relevance or constitutes our knowledge from the mythological perspective. The structure of the mythic known, or what is, what should be, and how to get from one to the other, is presented in the above figure, and that's that circle with the lines in the middle going to what we think should be from where we are now. The known is explored territory, a place of stability and familiarity. In mythology, it is the city of God. It finds metaphorical embodiment in myths and narratives describing the community, the kingdom, or the state. Such myths and narratives guide our ability to understand the particular bounded motivational significance of the present, experienced in relation to some identifiable desired future and allow us to construct and interpret appropriate patterns of action.
from within the confines of that schema. Okay, so he's breaking down the patterns of life by our brain activity, our motor output. Why do we do the things we do? Well, it's because we, we think that that's what we want. Any thoughts? Um, two thoughts. Um, I'm glad I asked. I'll start with, okay, so the one before. Um, oh, man, no, but now those two thoughts again mixed up. Okay, what did you just <laughs> say before you asked me? Um, what was it? How did you phrase it? Could you repeat? Do you remember? Which one? Just before you asked me. Um, any thoughts? Okay, so... We're talking about the known, explored territory. Okay, what is in mythology that's considered the city of God, the kingdom, or the state? Such such myths and narratives guide our ability to understand the particular bounded, bounded motivational significance of the present, experienced in relation to some identifiable desired future, and allow us to construct and interpret appropriate patterns of action from within the confines of that schema. Right, and then you said something else. Um, no, no. Then I said, "Defense got messed up." That's a shame. Well, try to do this. <sighs> try to do what I do. Just breathe for a second and let your mind go blank. And whatever comes up was the question that you wanted. What comes up is the first thing I wanted to ask. Okay, so the you have the what is, what should be, and what you're going to do about it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so you know the what is, and you know what this should be. You know your should be, but what if you stay in the what is, and you don't do what the should be? Aha! Beautiful question. Beautiful question. That's why, that's why people like me exist. Because uh, everyone, to everyone. To motivate you to do the should be. <laughs> everyone is stuck in the what is most everyone is stuck at, at the what is and the and how sh and what should be and how do i get there okay that's the that's the that's the mythological or that's the metaphorical fall or descent of man of from knowledge and going through a dark period in life and trying to find out how to get back to the light, right? How to become the hero, how to, how to slay the dragon of chaos. And that's what life's all about, right? It's getting unstuck, seeing where you are, rolling up your sleeves and getting to it and getting to where you need to be, right? T you know, uh, tilling the soil of your life. So, you know, you ha these are amazing questions because you're getting down to the root of every person's path at some point in their life falls into this trap this this challenging aspect god knows i was there geez and i was stuck right and i didn't have anyone to say oh well this is what you should do right but what, at my age where I, where I grew up there i don't even remember a thing called a life coach i don't even remember knowing about like wise people or, you know, like a culture of, of um, role models. I don't even, 
did I have a role model? Probably Tupac. I'm not even kidding. Like the famous rapper Tupac Shakur yeah, was yeah. probably one of my first role models. Not even kidding. And then, then I became a drug dealer. That's how I became a loser. I had a, I had a loser role model. So to me, that was what, what, what is and how I should act to get to where I wanted to be. And then I realized that it was bullshit when I grew up and sought for a new, a new model of the world, right? I, I went blank. I was like, what? Wait, what? Wait, I'm not actually supposed to be a criminal? So everyone is stuck there at some point in their life. Should I go on or do you, what do you got? Yeah, continue. Cause I don't remember my second point. Okay. The basic grammatical structure of transfer transformational mythology appears most clearly revealed in the form of the way. Okay. And I, and I highlighted this entire section. This is a, this is like the longest section I highlighted. It's like five paragraphs because this is the path. This is the way. And I love that. I, I love how Peterson is not like always stuck on Christianity. He goes in and out. He goes to every religion. He really is a theologian. He goes, he goes to all religious thought. And obviously I'm, I'm down with Eastern philosophy and that's what I'm going to like lean towards. And so when he leans toward that, I'm like, yeah, exactly. Okay, so the great literary critic Northrop Fry. Okay, Fry is a is a super famous name in in uh, philosophy. So everyone should look up Fry. Comments about upon the idea of the way as it manifests itself in literature and religious writing. Following a narrative is closely connected with the central literary metaphor of the journey, where we have a person making the journey and the road, path, or direction taken. The simplest word for this being way. Journey is a word connected with jour and journey and metaphorical journeys. So he was just, that was a bit of French there metaphorical journeys deriving as they mostly do from slower methods of getting around usually have at their core, the conception of the day's journey, the amount of space we can cover under the cycle of the sun by a very easy extension of metaphor. We get the day's cycle as a symbol for the whole of life. Thus in Hausman's poem, reveal, reveal, oh, that's French. I'm sorry. Up lad. When the journey's over, there'll be time enough to sleep. The awakening in the morning is a metaphor of continuing the journey of life, a journey ending in death. The prototype for the image is the book of Ecclesiastes. Ooh, sorry, that's a Christian word. I'm not familiar with it. Which urges us to work while it is day and before the night comes when no man can work. So he then goes on to say, in Chinese Taoism, uh, Taoism, the, ta the Tao is usually also rendered way by 
commentators and others and academics. Though I understand that the character representing the word is formed of radicals, meaning something like head going, the sacred book of Taoism, the Tao Te Ching, begins by saying that the Tao that can be talked about is not the real Tao. In other words, we are being warned to beware of the traps in metaphorical language, or in a common oriental phrase of confusing the moon with the finger pointing at it. But as we read on, we find that the Tao can, after all, be to some extent characterized. The way is specifically the way of the valley, the direction taken by humility, self-effacement, and the kind of relaxation or non-action that makes all action effective. The way is the path of life and its purpose. More accurately, the content, the content of the way is the, is the specific path of life. The form of the way, its most fundamental aspect, is apparently intrinsic or heritable possibility of positing or of being guided by a central idea. This apparently intrinsic form finds its expression in the tendency of each individual generation after generation to first ask and subsequently seek an answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? So that's where it begins. What is the meaning of life? He ends chapter one by saying, belief is disruptible because finite, which is to say that the infinite mystery surrounding human understanding may break through into our provisional models of how to act at any time, at any point, and disrupt their structure. The manner in which we act as children may be perfectly appropriate for the conditions of childhood. The process of maturation changed the conditions of existence, introducing anomaly where only certainty once stood, making necessary not only a change of plans, but reconceptualization of where those plans might lead and what or who they refer to in the present. The known or current story protects us from the unknown, from chaos, which is to say it provides our experience with determinate and predictable structure. The unknown, chaos, from which we are protected has a nature all of its own. The nature is experienced as affective, valence, at first exposure not as objective property, okay? So effective valence means the meaning behind anomaly is going to change us. That's why we have fear. Something is going to kill me. Something is going to hurt me. Me losing my job means immediate death, okay? That's effective valence. It's not objective, right? In other words, it's not real. It's just a fear. If something unknown or unpredictable occurs while we are carrying out our motivated plans, we are first surprised. That surprise, which is a combination of apprehension and curiosity, comprises our instinctual, instinctive emotional response to the occurrence of something we did not desire. The appearance of something unexpected is proof that we do not know how to act by definition as it is what we want that we use as evidence for the integrity of our knowledge. If we are somewhere we don't know how to act, we are probably in trouble. 
We might learn something new, but we are still in trouble. When we are in trouble, we get scared. When we are in the domain of the known, there is no reason to fear. Outside that domain, panic reigns. It is for this reason that we dislike having our plans disrupted, so we cling to what we understand. This does not always work, however, because what we understand about the present is not always necessarily sufficient to deal with the future. This means that we have to be able to modify what we understand, even though to do so is to risk our own undoing. The trick, of course, is to modify and yet to remain secure. This is not simple. Too much modification, chaos. Too little modification, stagnation. And then when the future we are unprepared for appears, we have chaos. Involuntary exposure to chaos means accidental encounter with the forces that undermine the known world. The effective consequences of such encounter can literally be overwhelming. It is for this reason that individuals are highly motivated to avoid sudden manifestations of the unknown. And it's for this reason that individuals will go to almost any length to ensure that their protective cultural stories remain intact. And that's the end of chapter one. That's the basis behind life. The basis behind uh, inside life, we have the basis behind meaning that we give to things based on stories, based on. I thought you were summarizing the whole book and then I found out this was just chapter one. That's wow. Yeah, that was just chapter one. That was was page 28 of 400. Page 28 of 400. (laughs) That's why I waited. How long have we been doing this (laughs) podcast? That's why I was like, no, I can't. I don't know how. Yeah. It's so big. (laughs) That's why this book changed my life. I mean, it literally, this book literally changed my life forever. I never understood life in these terms. And, and I when thought, did you, when did you first read it? It was like 20s. It wasn't even that long ago. It was like 2017. Wow. It's like what? 18, 19, 20s, three years ago. Yeah. And I thought I was like intelligent up to that point. And I was like, I know nothing, but the thing is, uh, I was able to pick up on everything because of the, the research that I had done up to this point. But the way he describes life, it had never been, under, had never been explained to me before. I, I knew, and well, look, we all know the way. We all know, we all know that we're on a journey of some weird and mysterious sort. We all get that. But to understand the 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 details within the way and to explain why the way is the way it is that takes some serious uh research and reflection and meditation and to have chaos and order as a means of breaking it all down the known and the unknown right the unexplored and the explored that is a very clear way to explain what the Tao explained 
thousands of years ago. And so he took the Bible, he took the Quran, he took the Tao Te Ching, and he just broke it up into these two concepts, chaos and order. And he's not the first person to do that, but I mean, he's the first person that I came across who did that. You know, I was, I was exposed in my learnings to, in my education, to the individual parts, but having it put all together like that, and that's the end of chapter one. I mean, it's, it's absolutely groundbreaking. It's breathtaking to me. And so that's why I think we'll break it up into uh, another episode and we will continue next time with the rest of this uh, impressive body of work.